Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Writings of the Promised Messiah, alayhi salam. Our God is our paradise. Our highest delight is in our God, for we have seen him and have found every beauty in him. This wealth is worth procuring, though one might have to lay down one's life to procure it. This ruby is worth purchasing, though one may have to lose oneself to acquire it. O ye who are bereft, run to this fountain, and it will satisfy you. It is the fountain of life that will save you. What shall I do? How shall I impress the hearts with this good news? And by beating what drum shall I make the announcement that this is our God, so that people might hear? What remedy shall I apply to the ears of the people so that they should listen? You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. In the name of Allah, the Gracious, the Merciful. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Peace be upon you all and welcome back to another edition of Drive Time Show with myself, Saad Ahmed, and my co-presenter, Noor Shirwan, for today. Today we have some interesting topics which we'll be speaking about. One, in the first hour, we'll be speaking regarding the, um, the, um, about terrorism in Africa. While in the second hour, we will be speaking about um, eating disorder. These topics are, you know, every, every single time when we come on a, a drive time show, we, we always try to present new topics, new ideas, and and revisit some ideas again, um, topics again, to make sure that the message goes out and people do um, get the information which is needed. So first of all, before we start off today's show, Assalamu alaikum, Noshawan, how are you? Assalamu alaikum, Saad. Zakla for asking, Alhamdulillah. Um, by the grace of Allah, well, how are you doing today? Zakla, Alhamdulillah. It's been a long time we haven't done a um, show together. I think it's been like three, four weeks so far, as far as I believe. So it's good to see you again. It's a nice weather outside. I, I just walked out, it was like 25, 26 degrees here in yeah. South London. Yeah, the weather's really nice. Yeah, and I haven't, I think I haven't presented with you for yeah I think over a month or so uh, just due to like other engagements <laughs> uh, but it's nice to be back uh, in the studio with you yes you know not sure just sticking, sticking with the weather here you know as as we're getting closer to autumn this it feels like it's it's, it's a it's a summer's day again yeah. <laughs> I think we've got, yeah we have some nice sunny spells over this week Inshallah. I think uh, and it just uh, brightens up your mood doesn't it oh the yes sun definitely just, uh, makes you feel it gives you that extra energy Yes. Um, as opposed to when it's uh, raining or when the weather is really cloudy and gloomy. 
Great. Uh, so it is a beautiful afternoon. Um, l- looking up from the studio, it's beautiful weather, blue skies, uh, small little clouds on uh, here and there, and it's, it obviously lightened up the mood and hopefully we'll be able to present even better today than yep. ever before. So obviously, um, I'm heading back to our topic for the first hour. So the topic is Africa, breeding ground for terrorism. So that's a, that's a question which which is being asked. So, you know, in the Holy Quran it is mentioned, and kill not your own selves. Surely Allah is merciful to you, chapter 4, verse 30. You know, Africa is a complex and a, in a diverse landscape and has become a focal point in the global fight against terrorism. In the recent years, the continent has witnessed the rise of various terror groups, posing significant challenges to regional stability and international security. So, so today we will be delving into the factors that have contributed to Africa becoming a breeding ground for terror groups, exploring historical and socio-economic dimensions that have shaped this alarming trend. So obviously, you know, um, if you, Doshman, if you tell us a bit about the historical context behind this, yeah, so no, so just um, before I go into the historical context, sure. um, this verse that you just recited um, just before, it tackles directly with the, the whole concept of terrorism, yes. right? Because it mentions that kill not your own selves, kill not your own fellow human beings, Correct. because that is um, not what humanity teaches you. This is not a, a principle which humans should live by. Rather, yes. we should serve other human beings we should look after each other and we should protect each other as well as protecting our environments and our planet going into the historical context um, the seeds of Africa's vulnerability to terrorism especially they were sown during the colonial era right and European powers mm-hmm. at that time carved up the continent and it often drawed arbitrary borders without considering certain aspects such as ethnic, tribal or religious affiliations. So right. leading that led to a creation of artificial nation states with deep rooted divisions. Mm-hmm. That's like historically speaking, that's how it developed into the current state that it is. And then after gaining the independence, like many African countries, they then struggled to establish like stable governance and the stable government uh, structures as well. Because of course, when you, when you split up into different nations, you need to have your own governmental bodies that run the country. Yes. So obviously when they were split up into different nations, setting up these governments or these governance uh, structures was a difficult task. And the opening avenues for unrest and the emergence of armed groups then began because the structures were weak or they wasn't stable to an extent. Um, and that's why uh, the whole structure and then the whole um, these different uh, groups that emerged from it mm-hmm. was quite evident. Correct. That was like, in brief, the historical context. Obviously, you have many factors that Correct. led up to how uh, <clears throat> these uh, different um, groups of terrorism they erupted and how what factors played in, into actually um, becoming these groups. Yes, that they are yeah. of today. You know, Noshravan, just sticking by this and uh, stick coming back to Islamic as, as, as it is, voice of Islam. So, you know, terrorism and all that. Let's link it to the Holy Quran, as you mentioned before, you know, um, and kill not your uh, own selves. And surely Allah is merciful to you, as uh, chapter 4, verse 30. Likewise, Allah the Almighty has mentioned in various different verses in the Holy Quran, you know, that 
and cast not yourselves into ruin with your own hand. Chapter 2, verse 196. And again, Islam strictly forbids to, um, the killing of innocent. And you know this is um, this is this has been mentioned in the in chapter four uh, chapter two and um, verse um, one ninety four, and you know Islam has been teaching this from day one that do not kill anyone take it uh, that there is no compulsion in religion like Rahafiddin that you should live in ha- harmony peace respect everyone it, it, even when wars happen at the time. Um, of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. There were many things which uh, his holy, uh, the, Prophet, uh, the Prophet of Islam said not to do, that don't uh, mutinate anyone's body or don't hurt any children, women, elderly, plants, and you know, many more factors. But obviously when we look in today's society, it's a click of a button from sitting anywhere and it destroys a whole area. It doesn't look if there are any plants there, any children there, any elderly there, or anyone who is not even participating in, in the war, but it's just okay, because it, it's in the area, we'll have to um, press the button from where we're sitting. Okay. So these things, obviously, that's that's what Islam has been trying to eradicate from, um, from um, in today's society, that there should be peace and harmony, and Islam actually means peace. Yep. Yeah, you're right. Um, yeah, just obviously leading on from from that point. Um, obviously, there there are different aspects of um, war, and Islam yes. teaches that, um, like you mentioned, the unjust killing of children, women, and I think um, going back um, in in an address um, at the annual convention, His Holiness Hazrat Mizam Masoor Ahmed, uh, may Allah be his helper, had mentioned. That if the teachings of Islam are followed in this world, then that is a a solution for all the world problems. Yes. Right. So I think if if world leaders, if these people of authority, if they pay attention to the words of His Holiness, I think we can become the world itself can become a better place to live in. Yes. So obviously, we're specifically talking about the the content of Africa and how that's uh, developed into. A place of terrorism. Of course, there's different uh, sects um, that are, are different groups that have become uh, as a form of terrorist organizations. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe because they have different different factors, different uh, religious beliefs, or different um, uh, backgrounds. Um, so, just leading from that, there's there's a few socio-economic factors. Correct. You know, some of, for example, is poverty and economic disparities um, are. Pervasive, you know, in Africa, making it an ideal breeding ground for recruitment into ter- terrorist organizations. High um, unemployment rates, lack of access to education, and limited um, economic opportunities have, you know, left uh, many um, disillusioned um, youth vulnerable to extremist ideologies, a promising and alternative path. You know, this is, um, you know, uh, one thing. Nosh here is. The education is the key point to remember. You know, when you teach someone about um, the world, about religion, and they actually go to the source and read it from the source, they will understand. Okay, this isn't what has been taught by these extremist groups, because you know people pluck and play with the, play with words, right? And say, oh, okay, this is what has been said um, by your religion. So you have to fulfill those words. Even though they don't know themselves, um, um, these um, vulnerable um, youngsters, 
okay, what's actually been written there. But let's see. Let let's take for example Islam here, right? At the start of every verse, it is mentioned Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim in the name of Allah, the Gracious, the Merciful. It's not mentioned anything else. It's mentioned that Allah is the one who is gracious and He's very merciful. He doesn't He doesn't mention He, he is um, something else. But he is, if you go to him, if, when you ask for his help, he's there to help you. And it's been mentioned countless times in the Holy Quran that he is the, Allah is the one who will be, who's the true guide, guardian of you. So we should, we should try and obviously, you know, go back and try and learn whatever you learned for the listeners out there. Mm. So whatever you listen or whatever you hear, it's always best to go back to the source mm. and just make sure you check over whatever has been said. If, for example, myself here sitting today, I, c- I can make a mistake here also, right? I'm a human being, I can make mistake. And it's always good to go back to the source and see did whatever Saad has mentioned here is actually been mentioned in the start of every surah, except one surah, Surah Tawbah. It's been mentioned, Surah Bismillahirrahmanirrahim, the name of Allah, the gracious, the merciful. So it's always good to go back and check is it actually been mentioned there or not. Yeah, and especially for these uh, youngsters, the youth, um, of course, they don't have, um, as a, a lot of them or some of them do not have access to, let's say, um, the, the facilities that we have in the West, mm-hmm. right? So they they are looking up to those that are their elders, right? They're looking up to their example. And if any of them are indulged in the wrong, then that is an example for them. Yes. Yeah, right? So that's what we're mentioning. Some of the factors that have led into these terrorist organizations is because the youth are deprived of the fundamentals such as education. Yes, you know, Zakaria. I'm sorry, it's not Zakaria today. It's, 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 it's stuck on, my, on the tip of my tongue every single time. Yeah, Zakaria no or saying Sergil. But no, it's been a very long time meeting yeah. you. It's yes, all right, no worries. <laughs> Zakla. You know, um, it's, um, Nosh, I've, I've actually forgotten now what was being said. Yeah, so we're discussing different um, aspects um, yes. of uh, the factors why these uh, organizations have, have come into existence in Africa. Do you apologize for to your listeners, you know, when, uh, when when a mistake happens, you suddenly blank out and you're like, okay, what was being said suddenly? So obviously, um, coming back to the point, you know, religious um, conflicts and proxy wars especially, there are n- many um, numerous um, uh, um, regional conflicts and proxy wars um, have plagued Africa with neighboring country, um, countries um, often intervening in, in the internal affairs of others. These conflicts create power vacuums and enable terror groups to capitalize on the chaos and establishing um, safe havens and expand their influence. You know, um, I was um, before coming in today, I was just going through um, terrorism um, in Africa and, you know, and just reading about what the history was and what are the causes of terrorism in Africa, you know? Yep. And it is, it's is—it's been mentioned that um, the cause of violence is in, uh, in, in surge, uh, insurgency in Africa, African nations and very, um, very a great deal. The continent is vast with tremendous cultural and language, uh, language differences at work and the only true shared experience is a historian of the European colonial um, Organization. Hopefully, I got that right. Condolization. Yes. So you know, it, it, it says you know, four point six million people were dis, um, displaced uh, in the region of Sahel, and um, 
and it's mentioned in many other places about Islamic terrorism also. And for, unfortunately, people where in the, they commit terror by um, portraying um, Islam in the wrong way. Yep. I would put in these words. Obviously, Islam doesn't teach that, but people have taken um, words out of context or they have been taught the wrong Islam, in my opinion. And that is also a great, um, a big factor there. Even when you when the nine martyrs of uh, of our community in Burkina Faso were um, martyred, they were killed one by one, and they said, "Denounce your faith." And imagine nine people lined up, and one by one being asked to denounce their faith. Mm. And the first person says, I'm not denouncing my faith. I believe what I believe in. And he was martyred. And by the end, all nine stood firm on faith because they knew the truth. They knew what the true Islam is. They knew what the Holy Quran has been teaching. And they knew as the, the promised Messiah, peace be upon him, as the true um, um, messenger, uh, a, a, a and understanding um, b- within themselves, okay, this is the tr- um, true faith. So, yeah. these uh, are this is a re- comp- re- yeah, very uh, incredible and emotional story of Correct. these martyrs. I think we'll we'll go on to it because I think we cannot suffice within a couple of minutes just the whole story itself. Oh yes, um, we'll come back to it later. But we we're obviously discussing various aspects of um, um, so, Yeah, you know, when when it came about the re- regional conf- conflicts and wars, and suddenly just yeah. came in my head. Okay, this this also happened yeah. in January this year. Unfortunately, so you know the ideological factors also. You know, terrorist ideologies often root in religious extreme and um, separatist ideologies, and find fertile ground and region with existing grievance and historical enormities. You know, groups like Boko Haram in Nigeria, Al Shabaab in uh, Somalia have exploited re- religion, ethnic, and uh, was called political tensions to rally support and gain recruit. So, you know, these are some of the um, terrorist organizations which are well known throughout the world, especially yeah. Boko Haram. Th- that name pops up um, constantly over the news over, over, over various years now. So, obviously, there are also geographical factors. Yeah. Um, so, there's one thing that I feel that, um, you know, since Africa is a different continent, I feel that their news of terrorism, I think, is undercovered. Mm-hmm. It's not covered in the news Correct. as such, right? You, maybe every now and then you'll hear that this group has done this, this this group has done this, but I don't think uh, it's covered to the extent that people actually know what is happening there. They, they'll come up in the news every so often and you'll hear about this group, this group, but I feel that they are not covered as much and there could be many factors uh, why that, that is being done. Anyways, uh, going to the ge- geographical factors, um, Africa's vast and rugged terrain, particularly in center, uh, certain regions like the Sahel and the Horn of Africa, it, it presents uh, significant challenges, you know, just f- uh, to the different security forces mm-hmm. in regards to tracking and combating terrorist activities because of how Africa is as a continent. Regions like obviously to to monitor and to control um, the activities going on, it's it's difficult, and especially when you have a, a weak um, structure of the government, it's hard for them to 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 do um, just monitor that. And yes. then remote and sparsely populated areas provide sanctuaries for terrorists to operate with relative ease. 
So because of that factor, geographical factor, some of the terrorist organizations and groups, it's easy for them to carry out their, their task and whatever they're doing, um, it's, it's quite easy for them. Yes, you know, in, in terrorism in West Africa also, you know, um, the most notorious um, terrorist activities which happen um, are in the 21st century in West Africa, um, in, in West Africa is in Nigeria due to, um, as mentioned before, it's Boko Haram. And, you know, as um, with, um, for example, let's say Mali, Nigeria is one of the most populous nation, has a long history of corruption and uh, um, what's it called, um, inefficiency uh, in its government and uh, military and amplified uh, by the unprecedented 2020 um, NSARS movement. But obviously we have on with us, um, what's it called, a guest who will be speaking about this more in depth and we, we, uh, we, are, uh, we are very grateful for the, for the guest to be, be with us today. Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you. Um, Harun Maruf, who is a voice of um, American Somalian senior editor. Assalamu alaikum. Uh, hello, yeah, my name is How are you? Alhamdulillah. Thank yeah. you for having me. Thank you so much, first of all, joining us on such an important topic and um, view expertise on Africa will enlighten our listeners in, in a great depth and to understand what's been happening there. So, yeah, go ahead. Yes, yeah, so I want to ask you know, based on your coverage, what role does poverty, lack of economic opportunities, and marginalization play in the recruitment and radicalization of individuals? Yeah, just to give you uh, some background, uh, first of all, uh, as you said, my name is Harun Maruf. I'm a journalist for The Voice of America, but my thoughts here uh, do not reflect the position of the radio, uh, The Voice of America that I work for. Mm-hmm. I'll be speaking to you as a VOA journalist. Just okay. to give you some background, Africa for a long time uh, has been tracked by military coups, uh, bad governance, and uh, warlordism in the early 90s, for instance, political warlords, clan warlords, ethnic warlordism. But within the last 15 years, the, con- the continent uh, has been ravaged by uh, what I would call religious warlords. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, these groups have emerged to exploit the vulnerabilities of the communities, as, as you said, uh, based on our reporting and based on what we know so, so far, mm-hmm. uh, Somalia, Central Africa, Niger, Mali, Burkina Faso, Sahel region, you just mentioned it, all these countries and areas are some of the poorest uh, zones uh, in the world and in, and in Africa. Uh, I cover extensively Al-Shabaab and I have written a book about them. For instance, Al-Shabaab has made lots of recruitment in northeastern Kenya and coastal Kenya. And mm-hmm. these areas, there's a lot of land disputes, a lack of jobs, poverty, and uh, the, the, loca- the local uh, population are very vulnerable to these groups when they come and try to uh, exploit and give them a better, uh, not necessarily better, but other alternatives. For instance, in Somalia for 30 years, there was civil war, a lack of very strong central government. People were confused. They didn't know uh, what is the problem. Somalia had a military rule. They had democratic rule. Still, the country was not stabilized quickly and for almost 30 years now there is a 
uh, one way or the other, there is some kind of uh, instability and, and civil war. So these groups were saying, oh, we tried every uh, mechanism, every sort of um, system to govern ourselves, and uh, we need a different alternative, and this is the alternative. So that's what they are offering. But lack of jobs and mm -hmm. poverty are not the only reasons. As you know, there are Correct. also global causes. Uh, there's the Middle East, there's Kashmir, there's Chechnya, uh, and all these uh, causes also drive uh, some of the people into the hands of these groups. And, and interesting. Um, Arun, a quick question I wanted to ask. You know, you have been um, um, covering in an intense um, throughout Africa. Were you able to meet um, these organizations? And what was the reason they have joined? For example, why those individuals did join those organizations? Okay, so that's a very good question. I met some of the people who joined them and affected them uh, afterwards, and those people shared their opinions mm -hmm. with us, what forced them to join uh, this group. So there are, as I mentioned, there are variety of groups. For instance, in northeastern Kenya and in coastal Kenya, you might meet some people who genuinely thought that they are getting jobs, they're getting paid well by this group. Mm -hmm. The reality is different when they join them. They don't really get paid well, but they are uh, in return, they are indoctrinated and uh, uh, taken to uh, training camps and immediately they are put into combat and they are convinced to take their lives. So they go into very dangerous territory based on our reporting. But some of the people we also spoke to uh, say they joined it, uh, for instance, Al-Shabaab, which is the organization I mainly mm -hmm. cover. One of the people I spoke to for my book and also for our reporting, we have a program at VOA called uh, uh, Youth and War. And we talk about what led youth to join these groups. And uh, we spoke to some of them who defected and they shared the, their thoughts with us. They say they joined it because of the military intervention of Ethiopia in 2006 into Somalia. Somalia and Ethiopia did not have easy relations, and when Ethiopia entered to support the government that existed at the time, a lot of people, because of that historical animosity, they joined this group. They say they didn't know at the beginning that they were joining this group, but mm -hmm. uh, nonetheless, they say that's what drove them initially so that they can uh, dri drive Ethiopia out of Somalia. Uh, and then uh, after Ethiopia left Somalia, it was too late for them to leave, and they were very immersed into the ideology. Um, yes. So uh, th th those those are some of the reasons. But uh, as, as you rightly said, there are economical factors. For instance, Somalia, there's a 70 percent of the population are youth, and the unemployment is very high. Correct. Uh, so that that's one of the factors. Also, another factor is lack of education. Yes. If people are educated, they have better education, better access to uh, facilities, then they are in a position to judge and make up their own mind. But uh, as you know, not only Somalia, but in many countries that had instability, mm -hmm. and uh, this is based on our reporting and reporting by other organizations, the, the, the position of the government, uh, the gap vacated by governments and uh, local administrations were filled by uh, organizations that are offering free education. Yes. And uh, some of the, not all of them, but some of the education centers have also provided 
uh, an opportunity to these groups to come and easily recruit. Mm-hmm. So Harun, you know, as you as you mentioning some factors, for example, um, lack of employment or lack of education, and you have mentioned um, on the local level also what's been happening in the government. So what can um, the locals and the international what's it called um, efforts be done to um, eradicate these um, root causes, which is um, being um, uh, which causes terrorism in Africa? The based on our reporting, and I have done a program about this. Um, mm-hmm. the, the number of governments have uh, tried different alternatives, different measures to counter. Mm-hmm. Uh, for instance, Somalia appealed to the African Union. African Union approved the deployment of troops from five nations: Uganda, Ethiopia, Kenya. Djibouti and Burundi and uh, these uh, troops from these countries have been in Somalia since 2007 that is uh, more than 16 years and they've been trying to support the Somali government so that the government can stand on its feet train its forces um, and then uh, build it national institutions so that it can fight back against these groups that control vast areas in the countryside. They lost most of the towns, but they still control vast areas in the countryside. Um, other countries, for instance, in Mozambique, as we know, also did the same thing. Uh, there is a mission from Southern Africa countries, led by Rwanda, that had deployed troops in Mozambique to support the local government. In West Africa, we know that uh, France was there, United States has a basis in Niger. Niger just experienced a coup very recently, uh, but there were also coups in Mali, Burkina Faso. And we know, based on the media reporting, that these countries are now more uh, lenient to turning to Wagner group, this mercenary group from Russia, so that they can help them fight against these militants. And this is based on what Wagner might have done in Syria and Libya, where Wagner group and Russia have supported local authorities in fighting against this group. So a lot of governments are doing different measures in order to counter them, but Uh, in the end, it's going to depend on what local people do and how they stabilize their countries and how they create jobs and opportunities uh, for these young people. Um, I uh, have uh, published an, uh, an audio in the past uh, which was based on interviews with experts on how uh, these groups can be tackled and based on what they discussed it with me was that military solution military yeah uh, Harun, solution i think uh, the only solution yeah i think you're very right that uh, the locals are firstly responsible and i think if they if they can tackle the governments if they can tackle these organizations then i think the country could be of better place so you know we've uh, mentioned different factors um leading on the cultural and religious factors are also an influence So how do these factors influence the appeal of extremist ideologies in uh, certain African communities? Uh, well, as, as I said, um, there are international causes that uh, really a lot of young Muslims believe. And uh, this was reported in multiple platforms, hundreds said that young Muslims believe they there are in global injustices in 
in, in Palestine, in uh, Kashmir, in other places. Um, but uh, locally, for instance, in uh, there was ISIS. The last five, six years, ISIS eventually in Central Africa, in yep. Central African Republic, in Congo. And uh, if you go back and look at the conflict in this area, there were uh, very uh, long-standing simmering conflicts between uh, tribalists and local uh, clans. And uh, whenever there are um, there, there's local dispute, clans, civil strife, instability, uh, these groups come and they exploit. Some of them initially they provide uh, they, they they provide services, uh, they 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 security. Uh, uh, um, you know, some social services, uh, they solve local disputes, land yep. disputes, in order to show some normalcy. So they exploit this uh, uh, this kind of uh, disputes. But ultimately, we know these groups are, um, uh, rely on uh, attacks, indiscriminate attacks, and this is what we have reported in Somalia. They have been attacking hotels, uh, beachfront restaurants, uh, um, civilian areas, regardless of whether there is a military presence or uh, uh, local authorities in place. For instance, in Kenya, they have tried to create conflict between religious uh, groups. They have rounded up uh, uh, Christians, Muslims, and then they intentionally let go the Muslims and they executed the Christians. The intention is not Eastern Kenya was to create conflict between Christian and Muslims. It didn't work, and they didn't succeed. But that was the intention, as if this group is to do favorites for the Muslims. While in Somalia, just a few kilometers on the other side of the border, their attacks appear to be indiscriminate, and they're attacking public places, detonating explosives. So uh, their ideology can be confusing, but they they, they only... Uh, Ultimate goal is to is, is to create, establish Islamic government that reflects their own interpretation of Islam, and they wanted to reach that goal through violence, regardless. And that, that's what we have seen not only in Kenya, not in Somalia, but in multiple countries where these groups have been operating in recent years. Yeah, I think that's very interesting, and you know, you being a journalist yourself um i'm sure you must face some challenges in regards to you know addressing terrorism in africa um what are some of those challenges you're facing and whether you are able to deal with them um in order to um, address the problems there and what are some of the potential solutions um the based on what i just described the the first question that these governments and observers and the journalists and those stakeholders ask themselves is what led to the emergence of these groups? Why do these groups emerge? Uh, what are they exploiting? What's driving the young men into their hands? And I think their solution is the reverse of the problems that created them in the first place. Lack of jobs, lack of education. For instance, I'll give you an example. I covered the story of uh, four young Somalis who left the, uh, yep. in 2016 Canada, they joined ISIS. Right. Um, so in, in, in a lot of migration from Africa to the West, and uh, there has been no education 
uh, facilities in Somalia and in other countries, as I mentioned, so young young people have not been to schools. But when they go to Western countries, they are sit in schools based on their age, and uh, they cannot catch up with education because primarily they, they have not been to primary education, they don't necessarily speak the language, so it's difficult for them to stand mentally, they might be traumatized, so they can't stand, so they drop, they drop out. And when they drop out, they fall in the hands of the groups we just mentioned. So I covered that uh, story, for instance, of young people who really found schools, even in Western countries, very difficult to adapt because of the education and the early years that they have missed so early intervention facilities education centers opportunities for young people but also um, less militarization for instance what we have seen in somalia is the probably the intervention of ethiopia was one of the biggest drivers of young people into the hands of al-shabaab and uh, and, and i told you exactly, I spoke to some of them who precisely said, said that. And also the United States government uh, registered about two dozen young Somalis who went into Somalia uh, in 2006-2008. And uh, the primary objects of those young people who were going to Somalia was to fight against the, uh, the Ethiopian intervention. At that time, the intervention of Ethiopia was not uh, was not a taboo. It, it was a popular thing among Somalis uh, because of the historical animosity between the two. There were politicians today who are not necessarily members of Al-Shabaab who were coming to the diaspora advocating for young people to defend their country. So it, it was not illegal. They were not doing illegal, yes. anything illegal. <laughs> so they drove these young people to the country, but when they went into Somalia, they fell into the hands of of a different group. So less militarization. The other thing is more ideological approach. You know, if you uh, defeat a militant group, it doesn't mean you defeated the ideology. So uh, the, as I mentioned earlier, militarization is not the only There also has to be ideological approach and there has to be also economic approach. And this is what Somalia has been doing within the last year. The president of Somalia uh, finally uh, embraced that really militarization and military mm-hmm. approach alone cannot be a solution. And that's why this government, based on our reporting, have adopted this three-front approach to fighting al-Shabaab, which was mm-hmm. military, economic, seizing their assets, freezing uh, uh, accounts targeting people who might be supporting them, but also on the other hand, they uh, gathered all the Islamic scholars. They sat down. They've been discussing for days, and uh, they have issued a fatwa declaring that the government is in the right on the on the right side of the dispute. That uh, really Al Shabaab is uh, indiscriminate attacks are not uh, what Islam. Uh, uh, it's, it's all about. Yes. So that this is how they are approaching now. It, it's yes. a bit too late, but this is how, uh, the approach that they mm-hmm. are uh, taking now. Perfect. Thank you so much, Harun. And it was uh, great speaking to you. And hopefully, our listeners have taken um, some um, 
in understanding what's been happening in Africa um, and you it was great um, for you to show us you know what's been happening behind the scene in Africa thank you so much Harun for joining us today it's great uh, and it was a pleasure speaking with you today thank you my pleasure Zakila assalamu alaikum so this was Harun and you know Maruf who is a what's called voice of um, America Somali senior editor and is also a journalist you know it's great what Harun was saying right about education and lack of employment and I was you know pondering upon this um, over and over again about um, what's called education and everything and you know with education one thing which we have to learn is that you know we have to teach our women right in 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 because they are the ones who are bringing up the next generation if they are not educated how can they bring up the, edu- um, the next generation in a proper manner from very one thing which is natural is that a child is always inclined to the mother right anything he he will go up to the mother before he goes up to the father so it's always great you know um to uh, if you if we teach our um, women and uh, they can understand what's, what 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 is knowledge and everything yeah. and then Basadi they can to understand right um in a household the father is the main figure and of if course. he's part of such certain organizations these terrorist organizations then how is the child going to yes i'm not talking about those people who are in the organization already i'm talking generally about generally whole, speaking about right, yeah. as um as as what's it called if you train um uh, the women in those societies and they will be able to bring up the no, obviously yeah, right definitely everywhere in the world which already the West is, or, is someone who has already fallen into that, that trap mm. for that we have mm. to speak I think up. what um brother Harun said yes. um like how Somalia is trying to deal with it now yes. uh, over the past year the government bodies they play a massive role um in in these structures or in these organizations yes so i think if more governments take that stance of um actually making fatwas Uh, making these declarations that this is not the islamic teachings Correct. this is not the islamic you you have misinterpreted the verses of the holy quran to lead yourself into terrorism and to kill innocent then of course if more governments in africa uh, take this approach and actually fight terrorism in this regard then i think that that could be a solution potential so, you know, solution no sure on taking this conversation further we have our second guest with us today daniel um, azinga who um, is a research fellow at the um, african center for strategic studies as with this short introduction i would like to welcome him to the show assalamu alaikum peace be upon you daniel how are you Well, alaykum assalam. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for thanks for having me. Thank you so much for joining us and enlightening our listeners with the um, history and the knowledge about Africa and what has been happening behind the scenes. So, you know, Daniel, I wanted to ask you, you know, what are the key factors um, that have contributed to the emergence of um, these um, so-called terrorist groups um, in various regions of Africa? Well, uh, I think the most important thing to think about here is that uh, when you're talking about Africa, we're really talking about a huge context. Correct. Correct. Um, and and so you know there are different factors depending on the region that you're looking at. Um, there's really a diverse array of different terrorist groups in Africa, and um, you know the factors that are are you know some 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 might call it a driver for those terrorist groups. Um, they really vary from location to location. You know that that said um we can try to generalize a little bit um mm-hmm. and you know in many contexts 
there are some political and socioeconomic grievances that uh, are easily activated by terrorist groups. They're exploited by terrorist groups to radicalize young people in particular, um, attracting them to violent extremism as sort of a means to um, emancipate themselves, uh, to improve their livelihoods. Um, mm-hmm. and, and ultimately, this is a governance problem. Uh, you know, this is an issue where governments are failing to provide opportunities for communities. Um, and, and, and another area where governments are failing or, or struggling in any case is in their management of insecurity. So in many contexts where we see terrorist groups thriving, uh, there are contexts in which there was already a general insecurity that communities were facing. And in these contexts, some governments have applied heavy-handed approaches to counterterrorism, to trying to restore security, um, and and have been credibly implicated in abuses against civilian populations. And we've we've found in the research that we've done that uh, when uh, the security forces target civilians, they are engaged in human rights abuses against civilians or violence against civilians. Uh, that this o- often has sort of the the opposite effect uh, than what governments desire. Rather than restoring security and protecting communities, uh, it tends to push individuals towards terrorist groups for retaliation, mm-hmm. revenge, retribution, uh, and and in effect contributes then to those terrorist groups uh, gaining a base of support and and strengthening their overall organization. Yes, you know, Daniel, you've been you've done. A great immense work um, around security challenges which are being faced in um, Africa. So, if, for example, the local um, governments uh, are f- um, failing, why are, is um, the international um, um, bodies also um, being unable to um, put security back on? If I'm if I say if I'm saying that correct. Yeah, I think it's a very good question and and uh, an important one because I think we're seeing you know. Uh, we're seeing more and more that in some contexts the situation has deteriorated to such a poor level um, that there really is a need for the international community to step in. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and in some places this has happened more effectively than in others. Um, you know, the, the recent efforts by the African Union in the Horn of Africa and Somalia in particular have tried to change strategies and change tack. They're working much more closely with the local government in Somalia um, and and there's been you know um, I wouldn't I wouldn't say it a huge change and or, or huge success but it does you know cautious it can be somewhat cautious cautiously optimistic that perhaps there's some positive change um, whereas you know in other contexts uh, we've seen uh, the that international community really hasn't been uh, effective uh, in addressing the issue of terrorism. Um, in mm-hmm. the Sahel, for example, in West Africa, uh, around Mali, Burkina Faso, and Niger, you know, there the really has just been an ongoing deterioration of security. Um, all of the trends are pointed in the in a really terrible direction, with violence accelerating, terrorist groups gaining a foothold, um, and you know, really those countries kind of being on the brink of civil war, and that despite uh, quite a lot of international support and. Mm-hmm. I think that the the key thing there has been that the international community has focused perhaps a bit too much on uh, hard security approaches, uh, a military first approach, uh, rather than on the the governance side of the equation and trying to address some of the 
political and socioeconomic grievances of the communities and populations yes. involved in, in those countries. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's the shift that needs to happen. And one place where we've seen that uh, you know, tentatively applied uh, has been in northern Mozambique. Uh, and in northern Mozambique, we've seen the South African uh, development community, the, the SADC community, uh, come together and do a, a military intervention there that has been much more um, community-focused. Uh, it's really at the grassroots level, uh, trying to engage with community leaders and civil society in an effort to connect security forces, the military, um, this this international-led military intervention, the SAMIM, S-A-M-I-M intervention in mm-hmm. northern Mozambique, uh, to identify what are the needs of communities and the population. And um, and in doing so, they've really kind of taken the momentum away uh, from terrorist groups operating in northern Mozambique. And so that seems like a much more effective model. Um, and so, you know, just like there are different drivers, depending on which particular region you're looking at on the continent, uh, there, there have been different international responses as well, and, and some of those responses have been more effective, like in northern Mozambique. Mm-hmm. Some of them have required changes in strategy over time, like in Somalia, and, and others have been less effective, uh, as is the, the current case in the Sahel. Yes. And so, Daniel, just um, taking the conversation further, you know, um, are there any patterns, um, for example, in terms of, um, let's say, recruitment um, strategies or tactics that these um, so-called organizations, threat terrorist organizations, use um, to um, recruit people? Yeah, so this is a, a growing area of, of interest. Um, you know, I think that, you know, again, I'll, I'll preface it by just making that that qualification that that things vary widely from region to region. That's correct. Um, but I think that you know, you know, generally speaking, um, the most common practice is to offer some form of employment or opportunity. Mm-hmm. You know, some kind of promise made by terrorist groups: the offer of a of a better life, um, support, you know, financial support or some other kind of support for one's family. Um, you know, sometimes. It can be, you know, the simple offer of, of adventure. Um, you know, young young men facing very little prospects uh, for their future, um, and and looking for some kind of opportunity may just want some sort of adventure. Um, you know, sometimes terrorist groups have been able to to attract young men for those purposes alone. Um, and sometimes, as I as I mentioned earlier, um, there are strong grievances, particularly against security forces that have been engaged in abuses. And so sometimes terrorist groups offer the promise of revenge, um, of retribution. Um, and and so any one of those promises, I think, is, is a way that terrorist groups have, generally speaking, been able to engage in different recruitment strategies. Mm-hmm. Um, we know from the research uh, conducted um, by various organizations that former terrorist group members find that these promises are rarely fulfilled. The, the problem is that once an individual takes the step of engaging with a terrorist group, it becomes increasingly difficult to change that path. And, and so we see that that's sort of the tactic. The tactic is an initial appeal uh, to whatever it is an individual may be feeling that they lack or that they need or that mm-hmm. um, they could benefit from. Uh, and then once engaged, they, they really end up sort of on a, a stuck path dependent uh, trajectory, and oftentimes that trajectory leads towards indoctrination, 
sometimes it leads to the development of an ideological belief in what the terrorist group is offering. Um, and, and, you know, in, in some severe cases, they end up in a situation where they are effectively trapped in uh, the society that they, they have uh, come to belong to as part of these terrorist groups. And, and so, you know, there's, there are a lot of different pathways, um, but many of them get more complicated and difficult uh, to to reach um, members who who are engaged at that level. Yeah, Daniel, you mentioned uh, one aspect was the financial support that these um, organizations provide. How are these yeah. um, organizations themselves? How are they funded, or how can they? Uh, how are they providing for other people? Sure. Yeah. So there are a variety of different ways, um, and so I, I I don't want to downplay. Um, the international uh, connections and and elements here. Yep. Um, there are there are some connections to larger um, international sort of level financial financial support. Um, and so, you know, we see across the continent that there are loose connections between Al Qaeda and Islamic State in particular, um, and some significant funds moving. Uh, across the continent to different sources that way through couriers and, and other means. At the same time, um, the, the again, speaking in generalities, you know, it does vary widely from region to region. Um, there are elements of criminal activity, of illicit activity on the part of terrorist groups um, across the board in, in each region that one could look where you have a sort of entrenched uh, terrorist group operating. And so we see in, in the Sahel, for example, that terrorist groups are very much connected to smuggling networks and trafficking networks, right. um, <clears throat> that they're, they're engaged in, um, in cattle theft, cattle rustling. Um, there, you know, there are some loose connections between, uh, the drug trade in the Sahel and, and some of the, of these terrorist groups. And so this is, this illicit activity generates quite a bit of economic incentive. In, in other contexts, say, for example, around the Lake Chad Basin, uh, which includes countries like Nigeria, Niger, Chad, Cameroon, yep. uh, we see that actually, you know, terrorist groups are sort of setting up sort of shadow economies. Um, so they they are able to control markets for fish, uh, for, for red pepper, um, and, and other goods. And they do so through sort of an almost an organized crime type of infrastructure. Um, and so, you know, we've, we've seen at times sort of pseudo governance elements by which they, they're able to run an economy and generate yeah, Daniels, funds. I think they, they are a number of factors which is contributing to their, to their financial support. Um, Daniel, we've yeah. got many questions by the time we are restricted. And it was a pleasure having you on our show today and uh, for enlightening our listeners um, with your insight. Thank you very much for joining us once again. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye. So this was um, Daniel Azinga, who is a um, research fellow at the African Centre for the Strategic Studies. We had so many questions, obviously, Nosh, for him, and uh, we are... Time restricted. Time restricted here. Yes. Unfortunately, we have only about two, three minutes left. But that's why I wanted to visit back to Burkina Faso, um, where nine members of ours were martyred, and you know. You know, I wanted to uh, go into detail depth, indeed, in, in, indeed. in that subject. But I uh, want to just mention two lines which His Holiness has mentioned, and 
and um, um, one of um, he says um, um, our community uh, a spokesperson of the community mentioned this um, our community uh, all around the world is a family and we are heartbroken at the brutal murder of our brothers and grief with their loved ones we pray that God um, envelopes the martyrs in in his mercy we also pray for the security of Burkina Faso and that the government fulfills its duty to protect all um, Burkina people including Ahmadi Muslims and that the per- uh, perpetrators of the heinous and evil crime be put brought to just justice so, you know and this is showing us again that where somewhere uh, um, the governments are lack- lacking but there's always um, the power of prayer Definitely. So it comes back to this also that we should ask Allah the Almighty for His help, ask Allah the Almighty for for the guidance, as is mentioned in the very first chapter of the Holy Quran. Guide us on the right path. Who is He asking us? Who are we asking for the guidance from? Allah the Almighty. We asking that, that guidance. So we should always ask for His prayers. Ask Him to lead us towards the right path. And obviously, we are hitting up um, um, just before the news. Also, so um, Nashirman, if you have any last words, we are just it's just to sum up um, Islam's teaching as a whole. Correct, they're contrary to the uh, the whole uh, concept of terrorism. God Almighty states in the Holy Quran, and cast not yourselves into ruin with your own hands. Chapter two, verse one hundred ninety-six. And of course, what the terrorism organizations are doing—they're killing innocent people. Correct, they are indulging in wrong beliefs and ideologies which is completely contrary to the teachings of Islam and what has been taught by the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. And Africa's transformation into this breeding ground for terror groups is the result of a complex interplay of historical, socio-economic and ideological factors, which we've discussed in depth before. So I think if the governments take heed, if the locals uh, can in, can come into play and factor these things in mind mm-hmm. then I think they can Africa could be one of the most developing nations in future thank you so much and we, we're heading towards the news now and see you again inshallah after the 5 o'clock news Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa You're listening to The Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet.
Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Azrat Mirza Majroor Ahmed is the present head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, the most dynamic international community within Islam. The community was established by Hazrat Mirza Khulam Ahmed in Kardian, a small and remote village in India. He claimed to be the expected reformer of the latter days, the one awaited by all major world religions. Founded in 1889, the community has continued to spread throughout the world, flourishing under caliphate, the system of spiritual leadership established after the demise of the holy founder. The current successor of this movement, Hazrat Mirza Masrur Ahmed, continues the work of the holy founder to revive the spiritual and moral state of mankind. The movement embodies the benevolent message of Islam and its pristine purity, a movement that preaches peace, universal brotherhood, and submission to the will of God. Ahmadi Muslims have earned the distinction and reputation of being a law-abiding and peaceful community. Within a century, the movement has reached all the corners of the earth and has been recognized and praised by the global community. Love for all, hatred for none. Those words from your third Khalifa are more important, more crucial, more essential today than they have ever been. And of course, the Ahmadi have always practiced this peace-loving philosophy. I am gladdened and inspired by the fact that the Ahmadis not only preach a message of love, friendship and understanding, but practice it fully in the way you include and invite others to share your gathering. An injunction to love all and to hate none is the avowed guiding principle of the Ahmadi life. I would thank you also that you have stressed uh, the importance of showing that Islam is the religion of peace, not the religion of hate, uh, as it was stated on the wall in the Yalsa, love for all, hatred for none. I think that is the message that the world really needs. You understand at a profound level that promoting religious freedom is an essential building block for peace and stability here and throughout the world. In this we are allied with His Holiness, a courageous champion of religious freedom and of peace. Love for all, hatred for none is the message that we see in this mosque and from the Ahmadiyya Association. 
Your people have been the leaders in taking the peace movements that one step further. The huge respect we have, we all have, for your work day by day in making a reality of peace and brotherhood across the communities in this country and across the world. I think the words that you said uh, to my colleagues in the House of Commons ring probably a little truer, but hopefully a little more hopefully than they did when you actually said it in the House a few weeks ago. His Holiness began his address by speaking of the great conflicts that divide the world today. Wars being fought in different parts of the world, he worried of even greater problems. He then went on and said, it is my fear that in my view of the direction in which things are moving today, the political and economic dynamics of the countries of the world may lead to world war. Therefore, it is the duty of the superpowers to sit down and find a solution to save humanity from the brink of disaster. They were words, Your Holiness, I think, that were taken very seriously by all who were there at that meeting. Wherever the movement has been established, it endeavors to exert a constructive influence of Islam through social projects, educational institutes, health services, Islamic publications, and the construction of mosques. These endeavors continue, despite the bitter persecution that the community suffers in some countries. We need all the goodness we can find in today's world. And I applaud you for your contribution in Britain and worldwide to community cohesion and the enjoyment of diversity that is such a precious asset. And wherever Ahmadis live in the world, you are renowned for enthusiastically participating in the larger community and peacefully living, living alongside people of all faiths, languages, and cultures. And I would like to pay an additional tribute to the work being done by Ahmadis in raising standards in Africa and particularly in education. Yes, Britain has welcomed the headquarters of the Ahmadis in this country, but it hasn't become something that's become, as it were, a closed sect in Britain. It's become a community that has sought to reach out to all of us. And that's very important because the best way to break down the barriers of misunderstanding and prejudice is for that contact to happen. And I thank you for that. The Ahmadiyya community contribute hugely to interfaith forums, to the richness of our community, and that is the same that's reflected across our nation. But what I would like to pay tribute to you as well this evening is the contribution that you make to wider society, the important charitable causes that you support, not just for your own communities, but for the wider communities. And that is to be acclaimed and that is to be applauded. A new station, the voice of Islam, with live discussions, religion and culture. Understand the true teachings of Islam with the voice of Islam. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. In the name of Allah, the gracious, the merciful. Assalamu alaikum and welcome back to the second hour of the Drive Time Show. Today is Tuesday and we are discussing another topic today, which is rise of eating disorders. And, you know, this is a um, topic which has been discussed here, but it's always good to revisit some um, of the topics again to that the awareness goes out to the general public and our listeners do understand what's, um, what are um, what's called the 
um, eating disorders. So in this today, in today's show, we are going to discuss obviously the rise of eating disorder and in today's society, eating disorder are becoming more common and we are going you know, to discuss this and why this is even happening. Anyone can be affected by an eating disorder at any age, any gender. There is not one specific community affected. So in chapter 7 verse um, 32, Allah the Almighty mentions, O children of Adam, look to your adornments and every at every time and place of worship and eat and drink, but exceed not the bounds. Surely he does not love those who exceed the bounds. You know, in this um, verse, Allah the Almighty um, clearly states a, a command that one should only eat and drink until you are full and that one should not overfill themselves as this can be seen as greediness and God is not pleased with those who are greedy and go into um, excess and be it food or and drink or something else so you know there are some stats uh, I would like to mention to our listeners here also you know in the UK the eating disorder statistics research um, suggests that between 1.25 and 3.4 million people in the UK are affected by an eating disorder about 25% of those affected by an eating disorder are male but most eating disorders develop during um, adolescence Although, they, uh, although there are cases of eating disorders developing in children as young as six and adults in their 70s also. You know, eating disorders are most common in individuals between the ages of 16 and 40 years um, of age. Around 10% of people affected by an eating disorder suffer from anorexia and nervosa. Um, and also a research suggests that um, individuals who have family members with these um, eating um, with eating um, disorder are more more likely to develop eating disorders themselves when compared to individuals who have no family history in these illnesses you know um, and also then eating disorders have the highest m- mortality rates amongst psychiatric um, disorders Anorexia nervosa has the highest mortality rate of any um, physiotherapy. Um, ph- ph- oh, I, I psychiatric. Psychiatric. You know, my uh, THs, they get stuck. <laughs> That's been from very uh, very young age now. <laughs> Disorder in, you know, adolescence and, and the, uh, the early... The um the earlier that eating disorder treatments are sought, the better the sufferers' chances of recovery. So these were you know some of the statistics, but you know as um Nosh, Nosh right now, which is interesting, is twenty five percent you know, um who are affected are male, and especially in a age between sixteen and forty. And so in our age, the mostly affected by this, you know, this is quite um, astounding, even though, you know, at this age, you are uh, mostly in your prime and you're fit and, and you try your best to keep up with your health also. So this is quite alarming. Yeah, definitely. And uh, uh, what's more alarming is that what's um, that it, this disorder is developed whilst you're transitioning from a child into adulthood. Mm-hmm. Um, that's when it's most likely um, to rise among you. And of course, we're discussing this is because eating disorders are on a rise. Um, the numbers are alarming. The numbers are worrying. But we need to first understand what is the actual definition of or what, how do you define um, what is defined as an eating disorder. Correct. So according to the NHS, 
Um, an eating disorder is a mental health condition where you use the control of food to cope with feelings and other situations. Mm-hmm. So that is, in simple words, what eating disorder can be. And unhealthy eating behaviours, it could include eating too much or too little, or sometimes you know people worry about their weight or their body shape. Yes. Anyone can get an e- eating disorder, but between uh, teenagers, between 13 and 17, are mostly affected. Um, and of course, you know, you, if you go search that age, that's the age when you're actually um, developing and transitioning from a, a young age, from a child to to an adulthood. Mm-hmm. Um, and with treatment, there is treatment. Most people can recover from an eating disorder. But of course, we go back to the teachings of Islam because we are a voice of Islam, a radio a station, which um, we look at the teachings of Islam and how we can practically put uh, apply those teachings yes. in our lives. So Allah the Almighty has stated in the Holy Quran, their ears and their eyes and their skins will bear witness against them as to what they have been doing. And they will say to their skins, why bear ye witness against us? They will say, Allah has made us to speak as he has made everything else to speak. And he it is who created you for the first time. And unto him have you been brought back. And you did not fear while committing sins that your ears and your eyes and your skins would bear witness against you. Nay, you thought that even Allah did not know much of what you used to do. This is a verse, uh, verses from the Holy Quran, chapter 41, verse 21 to 23. So the Quran explains that mm-hmm. the spiritual and uh, the physical well-being of a man or a woman are intricately related. And in many instances, man's desires, strengths and weaknesses, it will determine how the body acts or reacts to the influences around it. Similarly, um, the urges of the body will influence the state of one's soul. So a lack of uh, balance in man's spiritual activities will be reflected in the physical movements and developments of his or her body. Yes, you know, um, uh, Nashavan, you know, just on a side note, um, I was uh, I was reading um, about it also. You know, um, his um, the holy the holy prophet peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, the prophet of Islam, mentioned this. You know, that um, he used to eat little. But I used to, and that used to keep him going. They used to eat that only amount, which used to keep him going. And you know, um, um, it was it, it is narrated that you know, um, by Ibn Umar that you know that the the Holy Prophet sallallahu peace and blessings of Allah be upon him said this that you know that believer eats in one stomach, and whilst the disbelievers eat in seven. So that clearly states you know the importance of eating the right amount. So not too much and not too little, just the exact amount which need which you need to keep your body functioning throughout the day. So, you know, so this needs to be remembered here is that try and eat moderate. Obviously, we, this is on the side note from the actual topic. It just came in my mind and yeah. I was reading it and let's let also our listeners know about this. And, you know, coming back to the topics, uh, Nashirwan again, you know, um, tie that. Um, different types of um, eating disorders also. So most common um, eating disorders are, for example, anorexia and nervosa, which is trying to control your weight by not eating enough food and exercising ex- exercising too much or doing the um, both at the same time. You know, and bulimia, is, for example, is losing control over how much you eat and then take drastic action not to put on weight. 
and one thing which is called binge eating disorder or bed bed um eating large portions of food until you feel um uncomfortably full and you know this uh, it's remember but you know you those um programs where you have people who have trained themselves to eat large amounts of food at at the same time and this uh, this this came on my mind so I let uh, let the um, just keep a you know and a bit lighter mood because it's it's a serious topic which we are discussing so I want to keep um putting different ideas in also so and get get our listeners and rolling their heads also and trying okay this what can be done how can we change um um this this disorders and how or how can we get help about this also so you know um other specified feeding and um or eating disorder um osfed a person um may have osfed if the symptoms do not exactly fit um the expected symptoms of for any specific um eating disorder so offset is the most common eating disorder and then there are various different um um top um, was called um top um was called um uh, categories of this disorders and there is 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 a very long topic yeah, so, so you like know, uh, avoidant restrictive food intake disorder yes. that's also one of them which is also known as ARFID ARFID um and arfid is when someone avoids certain foods they limits how much they eat or does both um beliefs about body weight um they believe about weight or body shape are not reasons why people develop arfid yes um there could be possible reasons for arfid uh, arfid sorry uh, they include negative feelings over the smell taste or texture of certain foods a response to a past experience with food that was upsetting for example choking or being sick after eating something not feeling hungry or just a lack of interest in eating well there's so many eating disorders yes. that someone I'm coming across for the first time I've never heard Correct. of these do you know for this we had a expert with us um earlier um, uh, before the show uh, Carrie Fleming and um who is a head of um, head of um, safeguarding at the charity beat so we'll listen to his um, um wisdom for today's show we have Carrie Fleming who is the head of safeguarding for the charity beat Hi Kerry, how are you today? Hi, I'm good, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Oh, no problem. Um, can you tell us a little bit about Beat? Who are they and what do they what are they involved in? Of course. So Beat is the UK's national eating disorder charity. Our aim is to end the pain and suffering of eating disorders, um as we know which are quite serious mental illnesses that affect approximately 1.2.5 million people in the UK. We do a variety of different things. Um we help a lot of people to understand their illness. We support them to get treatment and help them towards their own recovery. Mm. As well as helping families and carers, you know, who may be supporting someone with an eating disorder as well. We do a lot of work around training teachers, health professionals and any any other individuals um who may be working with people to help them kind of spot the early signs of an eating disorder as well. Yeah. That's just a summary kind of what of what beat is and what we do. So um what are the possible reasons why someone might suffer from an eating disorder? So eating disorders are extremely complex um and they can be caused by a wide range of factors. Um there's very rarely just one cause. They tend to be quite complex and have a few uh, a few um in, a few factors involved mm. in, in its um presentation. 
some things like big life changes, such as grief, you know, family separations, divorce, potentially moving away from home for the first time, such as when we going to university, kind of times of like change can contribute to an eating disorder developing. There is also evidence to show that sometimes genetics can contribute to an eating disorder developing as well. You might consider things around low self-esteem, kind of society pressure, things like that may also play um, a big part in why someone might develop an eating disorder. I think in today's society as well, it's really becoming common because of social media as well. That's it. There's a there's a lot of pressure on on people, particularly young people, um, to to look a certain way, to act a certain way, to dress a certain way. So all those can definitely impact. Um, someone who may be already vulnerable to developing an eating disorder. Yeah. Um, what are the possible signs to look out for? So if obviously you're like somebody hasn't told you directly, so how can someone try and look out for someone who may be yeah. suffering? So that's a good question. Um, it's because early intervention is so, so important. There is a really long list of things available on BEATS website if anyone wanted to take a look. But some of the key signs that we always tell people to look out for are people maybe saying they've eaten earlier or will later, or that they've eaten more than they have. So not actually seeing someone eat, you know, trying to avoid those sort of situations and strict dieting and avoiding food yeah. that they think might not be you know, healthy or might be fattening and um, hiding food taking a very long time to eat meals. You might see people having um, different eating behaviours, you know, cutting up food really small, mm. different things like that. Um, anxiety, you know, eating in front of other people that may cause anxiety, eating in social situations. Then, of course, you may see some physical health signs as well, um, such as weight changes, tiredness, stomach pains, um, and then looking at things like binge eating as well. So you might see someone eating large amounts of food mm -hmm. um, and maybe someone who may be you know engaging in compensatory behaviors which might be purging by vomiting or using laxatives after meals and things like that mm. yeah um who can suffer from an eating disorder so is there anyone more likely to suffer or is just you know anyone can because i know when we talk about eating disorders and things like this we like almost certainly think about women first so mm -hmm. I was like I was just wondering if it's just open to everyone you know it's yeah not yeah again very important thing to be discussing um there is that stereotype out there isn't there of like young white women that those that struggle with an eating disorder but in actual fact eating disorders affect any age any gender any background as we and we know for a fact that one in four people with eating disorder are men, mm. and we know that men can, you know, they can find it a lot harder to to be to reach out for help and access the support that they need. So people are less likely to spot some of the signs in men as well. But definitely, we find that um, there is no specific community that has a higher higher range. It does affect everyone, um, and people need to be vigilant about that. Do you know? Yeah. Um. Going on to our next question, how does someone approach a person suffering from an eating disorder? So when they do find out, what's the best way to talk to that person about it? Yeah, um, that's a very scary thing for anyone to to do. And it, it does take a lot of um, 
planning and thinking for someone to to start a conversation yeah. I'd always tell people to think about what they want to say and make sure that they're informed enough as well prior to going into that conversation do you know maybe look, look at our website see what's on that and um, do as much of their own research as possible I'd always say choose a time or place where the person you're speaking to would feel safe and you won't be disturbed one one key piece of advice is avoid times kind of just before or after meals as this will already be a stressful time for mm. that person mm. um, and then your approach to how you ask the questions do you know like rather than saying um you need to get help maybe say something like do you know i'm wondering if you'd like to talk about this or how are you feeling about this but more of an open question so they don't feel backed into a corner um there are a lot of occasions where someone will tell you they're fine and yeah. they may seem convincing so we'd always say keep an eye on them keep in mind that they may still be ill they might not even realize it themselves um and don't wait too long before approaching them again because i think if someone someone else realizes that there's something wrong but that person themselves might not like comprehend it mm-hmm. and you're telling you're pushing them to get help to realize this it might make them even worse it's extremely common that someone may not be the first like so someone else realizes it first do you know it's exactly yeah. something that's happened before it, it may not make them worse at all so i would definitely ask tell people to continue to ask the questions and don't worry about um any negative implications that will have eating disorders are very good at pushing people away so the yeah. more that the eating disorder the more the person realizes they have a support network and they have people that care about them um, is actually going to be helpful in the long run. Mm. Um, for someone who suffers from an eating disorder, it might be really difficult for them to look past that, like how they how they're going to overcome it. So, what um, what would you say to those people who can see the difficulty in, you know, the the after the treat like the treatment of having an eating disorder, the afterlife of having an eating disorder. They're trying to yeah. overcome it. Yeah, um, I think the biggest thing for me would be to reassure anyone who feels maybe struggling with it or going through it at the moment that recovery is possible. We regularly support people who go on to live a full life away from their illness. You know, they're, they're able to move on from it um, following following some support and live completely full, happy lives. Mm we know that it can be very difficult to take that first step and tell someone about how you're feeling, but we urge anyone to speak to someone as soon as possible. Earlier intervention is key and getting those conversations in with those that you trust as early as possible when you realize something is wrong is so, so important. There is support out there. um, And the sooner somebody reaches out for help, the better chances of making a full recovery. Mm. In the first instance, we'd always recommend that they would speak to their GP anyway. and get to figure out what's on their local area kind of get some guidance and advice and just see how they're getting on physically as well yeah I think it can be like really they might feel some embarrassment in a way or something so it can be really hard for them to also take that first step as well definitely there are like you know in some communities eating disorders and mental health difficulties aren't aren't discussed very openly either so it can be hard yeah. for people to, you know, feel like they even understand it enough that they should be going to get help. Um, so it's about you know, having someone, a couple people that you trust and having that conversation with them. And then hopefully that will allow for further conversations to flourish from that.
Mm. Um, lastly, where can our listeners go for more advice about eating disorders? Yeah, of course. So um, as I mentioned, our website has so it's www.eatingdisorders.org.uk. We have a lot of information on there about the different types of eating disorders, um, variety of different resources people can access. And we also run help, um, like a helpline over the phone, which is open 365 days of the year. Um, and our number is available on our website as well. And we also have online web chat groups that people might be more comfortable with. Do you know if they weren't ready to speak to anyone yet, they can they can join some of our online support groups. And outside of that, I would always recommend someone speak to their GP as soon as possible um, yeah. and making an urgent appointment. Thank you, Kerry. Thanks so much. Um, that was Kerry from Head of Safeguarding from BEAT. Thanks a lot for your time. I really appreciate it. And I Thank hope you, you so have much. a nice rest of your day. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. So this was um, Kerry Fleming. And, you know, it's always great to hear from the experts about um, the topics in discussion uh, for today, which is um, eating disorder. So, you know, um, um, Nosh, if I, you know, I was about to say Zakaria again. <laughs> <laughs> That's the first time. Yes, obviously. So what causes, you know, eating disorder? That's the question. So... To be precise, we do not know exactly what causes eating disorders. Interesting. But, um, there could be various aspects, uh, just like our um, expert has mentioned um, in quite detail of uh, some of the aspects and uh, how we can resolve it. So you may be more likely to get an dis- uh, eating disorder if you are a f- member of your family mm-hmm. and has a history of eating disorders, depression or alcohol or drug misuse. Um, or you've been criticised for your eating habits, body shape or weight, or you're worried, you're really worried uh, about being slim, particularly if you also feel pressure from society or your job, mm-hmm. for example, ballet dancers, models or athletes. Interesting. And another um, aspect, another factor that you're more likely to get eating disorder is if you have uh, anxiety, low self-esteem, an obsessive personality or are a perfectionist. So these are some of the things, um, uh, it's not 100%, but you are likely to get uh, eating disorders if Due to one these of factors. those. Yeah. No, interesting. You know, um, I'm not sure one, you know, um, the, the promised Messiah, the founder of Ahmadiyam, uh, he has stated um, about this, may Allah be pleased with him, you know, that the movements of the soul follow the movements of the body. If the body is drawn in a particular direction, the soul automatically follows it. It is therefore a function of the book of God to direct itself to the natural state of men. That is why the Holy Quran pays so much attention to the reform of the natural state of men and gives directions with regard to everyone of his actions, his language, weeping, speaking, keeping silent, marrying, remaining single, walking, stopping, physical cleanliness, bathing, submitting to a discipline in health and in illness, etc. It affirms that man's physical condition affects his spiritual um, condition deeply. So, you know, these are quite powerful words um, of um, Hazrat Mizar Ghulam, the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. May Allah be uh, his helper. Uh, may Allah be pleased with him, you know, and likewise, you know, um, His Holiness has 
um, also mentioned this um, regarding um, for exercise, especially, you know, um, is um, that firstly, it is essential for the devotees of life and missionaries to undertake exercise. It's more the healthy eating with the topic is. So the, this can also help someone if they are going through this patch, they might, if they change the habit of eating a bit, they might help, this might also help them. Also, we have an ex- expert with us also, and we'll speak with this in, in, in depth with them. Um, secondly, it is the Western countries, unhealthy and junk food um, is also very um, common, which uh, must be avo- avoided. These factors must be considered to take care of. If they are single and live by themselves, they can can at least find some time for exercise while living in a mission house and should know techniques of cooking um, healthy food. So this was being mentioned, you know, to the missionaries of the Muslim community that, you know, if you living a, a single, just try to take some time out, make sure you get the ingredients and make some healthy food for your intake or for your daily intake. So um you know I'm not sure one you know um if we check um if um uh, how can we for example check if, if someone has an eating disorder um if you yeah might. so if you if you or people around you um sometimes you know you are worried um that you have an unhealthy relationship with food that means perhaps you're eating too much junk you're eating from outside too much or um you think too much okay if i'm eating too much i will gain weight or you care about your weight and your physical shape you could have an eating disorder and symptoms of eating disorders um they can include um spending a lot of time worrying about your weight and body shape mm-hmm. avoiding socializing when you think food will be involved eating very little food making yourself sick or taking laxatives after you eat exercising too much having having very uh, strict habits or routines around food and changes in your mood such as being withdrawn anxious or depressed you know to take this firm conversation further we have with us our second guest Daksha who is also known as Chef D British born um, Indian female chef who is trying to help people overcome eating disorder with this short introduction I would like to welcome her to the show Asalaamu Alaikum peace be upon you how are you hello hi I'm fine thank you thank you so much um, Daksha um, is we are great um, for you to join us. Uh, but if you can introduce yourself to our listeners, um, who you are and what you do. Hi, thank you very thank much. You so for much. Always, always giving me a lovely introduction. <laughs> um, hi, everybody. <laughs> my name is Daksha. I'm also professionally known as Chef C. Um, why? Because I've run my own food businesses uh, from the age of 25. I've uh, been running my own catering business and restaurant business. But in 2022, um, Sorry, 2020, I decided to embark on a new foodie journey. Thank I you. closed my businesses and um, I went on uh, a food journey to help other people combat their health challenges. Um, this all came about from after losing my own um, sister to cancer. Mm-hmm. And um, while she was diagnosed, we basically through the power of nutrition added um, three more years to the life and this opened a whole new realm of understanding and the importance of food and nutrition to myself my family and with the with the knowledge that I already had in the food business and and food generally mm-hmm. I thought well what better what better journey to be on than to help others 
So I sort of like re-educated myself and understood nutrition on another level. Mm-hmm. Not just putting good dishes together, but understanding what each ingredient um, should be doing to our bodies. So yes, I've taken that on and helping um, others to basically cook healthy and uh, understand nutrition. Yes, you know, the, the, uh, it's a commendable job you're doing and, and um, what's it called, educating people about um, eating disorders. So um, if I wanted to ask, what techniques um, do you use to help um, people um, um, who, have, who are facing with this eating disorder? Yeah, so like I said, I mean, like all of your other panelists were saying as well, eating disorders are, are very much uh, to do with the mental condition. Mm-hmm. Now, everybody has a different stage in their life where this is diagnosed. Some people even go a very long time without even being acknowledged or diagnosed. Mm-hmm. It's only, they only approach me or I can approach them when they need that help, um, when they reach out for that help. I think it's one of those, with food and food disorders, is you need to get to that stage where you've acknowledged that you've got a problem. And I think that's where the professionals need to um, come in and make sure that they're at that level. My my section of this intervention is how to make them fall in love with food again, mm-hmm. the correct food, how to cook it properly, how to take toxins out of your diet. Because I do believe that food, every, everything we eat, Yes. It triggers different emotions, different um, parts of our body will react to that kind of food. Um, earlier, we were listening to the specialist talking about um, food disorders where people are eating the wrong type of food. Maybe it's just sugary food. Correct. Um, maybe, maybe it's alcohol abuse. Maybe it's some sort of other abuse. Everything we consume will trigger a different reaction. Yes. So understanding what works for us and what's going to help us get out of this current situation of not eating healthy and, and well to be honest we can't really say all food disorders are just completely unhealthy mm-hmm. people are just not eating the correct food correct and malnutrition doesn't only have to be lack of food yes. or starvation it's lack of the correct food as well yes so, so uh, you know, yes so, for the people who think they might have an eating disorder, where can they go and ask for help? For me, um, I wish that they can ask for help um, very locally. Let's say um, some people don't even want to reach out to their GPs because they feel as if uh, they're going to be diagnosed with something, they're afraid of you know, taking medications, or, or some people just don't like talking about it. So. Mm-hmm. For me, I think families should be aware as well. There should be some sort of acknowledgement or education available at an early age where we all grow up yes. learning about this thing. It's not a taboo. It's like, you know, our siblings can be going through it, our, our partners can be going through it, our children can be going through it. We all should be educated where we should be able to recognize this. It's becoming such a common disorder. Yes. And it has been for many years, but people don't want to talk about it. So Correct. people that I've helped, I would say that they've literally gone past that stage, a very difficult stage, but with not a lot of people to help um, them, you know, they have to sort of 
contact their GP and they feel as if, well, I'm not ill, you know. This is um, something that they just feel as if, oh, am I going to be diagnosed with something? And they will avoid it. So I, I think it's family's responsibility as well to, to recognize these things. But where are they going to get this information from? It should be started early in school, I reckon. And I know we're already putting a lot of pressure on teachers. Yes. But there should be something in the education system where this this subject isn't a taboo. It's talked about naturally yes. and everybody can start understanding and learning themselves, starting reading their own emotions that maybe am I doing this correctly? Am I eating this correctly? Mm-hmm. Do I have a problem? And and your your own your own family can start recognizing it as well and start helping them. Yes. You know, Daksha, the, it, it, and obviously, uh, it's it, the great work you've been doing, the voice you have been raising and the awareness you have been raising is great. And, you know, how difficult it is for, for, the, uh, for your client, you know, and to try and have a healthy relationship with food? Um, I feel the difficulty element is right, obviously, at the beginning. They come to me with um, a lot of, um, they're anxious, apprehensive of trying new things. It's like, oh, I don't eat this kind of food or I don't like to cook and mm-hmm. there's nobody in my family who's going to do this for me so I'm going to continue the way I am. So it's just, there's, a, there's a barrier we have to overcome. So what I try to do is find out what is it that they like to eat. What is it that they reach for first and how can I turn that into something healthy not reversing their health is actually adding some benefit and tweaking it slowly, slowly. We can't change somebody straight away. It's little, little steps, you know, and if they're willing to even take that first step, just work on that and don't, don't push them into the deep end and just sort of make it a harmonious and enjoyable transition for them mm-hmm. because they need to really love food, different food, things that they don't, they, they've ignored, you know, a lot of people with disorders, food disorders, they always reach for comfort food. Mm-hmm. And some people who are having those disorders because they're punishing themselves will reach for foods that will actually make them ill. So again, that's another mindset. It's another It's another place where my, my job is to teach them to enjoy food, eat healthy. So the mindset and... and Diagnosing them with exactly how food is, you know, destroying them. That that's a, that's where the professionals come in, and I think they need to handle them very very carefully as well, um, because where we, where they need to go after that is to fall back in love with food. Yep. So Excellent. yeah, it's you a know. Yeah, so you know, individuals like yourself and also other professionals, they're doing a lot um, to help um, these individuals who are suffering from the eating disorder. But what do you think, what more can the governments do to ensure we are not seeing a rise in cases that we've already been seeing? Um, Government-wise, I feel, again, going back to schools, I really do feel nutrition should be taught in a very, very different way in schools, and not just on extra subjects. It should be a mainstream subject. It should be food, science, nutrition, lifestyle. It should be all connected as a mainstream subject 
all the way through schooling and beyond as well. It should be such an important part of education because it's an important part of our lives. Yeah, you're right. Um, it's not. It, it's not just. It's not a subject. It's you know we three times a day, everything we put in our uh, our bodies is so so profoundly important that education wise, it's put to a side where the the education part is too limited. It's it's you know, it's basically a, a subject that's just not dwelled into enough. Um, so first and foremost, school. Yes. Secondly. Obviously, media, social media. Obviously, that's not government's only government's responsibility. And I, and I do feel I would say in the past five eight years we have seen um, quite a nice shift in um, social media and you know lack of body shaming and a lot of these la- large cosmetic companies and everybody are, are going that route now and, and putting normally looking people in their adverts, mm. which is a fantastic move forward and and hopefully this. This way, people can can understand that we don't need to look that kind of perfect model look all the time, you know. Um, so hopefully that's all helping. But government-wise, definitely, I would say education. Um, there's no better way, um, and re- and information that's readily available. It shouldn't be a taboo subject. It should be something everybody can talk about, and you're not laughed upon. You know, there's there's recognition and understanding. That, yeah, that's how right. I um, yeah, I think education is key, and I think um, there is support, but maybe some people do not know where to look and how to look. Um, as we're speaking to yourself, Daksha, uh, how can people find out more about yourself and the work that you do? Um, just call me up. <laughs> um, <laughs> you can go on my website. Um, I do lots of classes. I do lots of one-to-one teaching. Um, I'm, I'm I'm currently embarking on a new journey as well with um, healthy eating with millets. Yep. If you can and just tell us uh, your website for our listeners, um, so if they wish yeah, to, where's it? Yeah, it's www.mygreenkitchenbychefd.com. Great. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Daksha, for joining us and in, um, sharing you your thoughts talking. with us. It was a pleasure having you on our show today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. So this was Daksha, um, also known as Chef D, a, a British-born Indian female chef who has been trying to, you know, help people overcome eating. So and it's, and it's a commendable job she is doing. Not sure about you know, they are, you know, these are the unsung heroes in my opinion. You know, that they are doing behind the scenes so much work and helping individuals who are facing day-to-day challenges and trying to get them a better life. So these um, are the people, I've, I've always said it in every sh- uh, most of the shows, all the panellists who come on, all the guests who come on and the work they're doing and it's always great to hear, hear it from their own words. So what the, what the work has been done and you're like, okay, wow, this is actually, people. there are people out there to look out for various different topics which Voice of Islam has been presenting and so many various different guests have been coming on to um, these shows and and then you learn so much more about them also. Okay, this is, this is beautiful. Even, for example, Daksha, it's a great commendable job she has been doing behind the scenes. Yeah, you're right. And you know, um, if you go back to the fundamentals of Islam, yes. um, um, one of our main aspects of our life is to, along with um, serving God Almighty, uh, it's important for us Muslims um, to serve His creation, the okay. creation of God Almighty. And you know, when when you see certain individuals in wh- whichever capacity they are helping other people, 
um, such as doctor is helping in, in regards to eating disorders. Um, we have so many other professions um, such as doctors, nurses, um, engineers, um, those that help other people in other countries um, such as war-afflicted countries and they are he- helping them. Yes. It's all part of service to humanity which is, which is very important um, in Islam and it gives very much uh, um, like, you know, importance towards this. So as we're discussing eating disorders and the rise in eating disorders, yes. there could be, uh, you could be suffering from an eating disorder um, yes. and there could be many signs that you might see. Yes. Some of the signs, they include... Uh, they, if you for, um, they are, for example, um, um, dramatic or drastic um, weight loss, you know, laying uh, about uh, how much they have eaten um, um, when they have eaten um, or they have the, the weight uh, or the about uh, about the weight. So, for example, if the the, if the X amount should be the weight, but say, oh no, are we actually oh, this much, right? They're lying about it. So, um, eating a lot of food very fast that's also one cause of it. And you know, going to the bathroom a lot after eating, exercising a lot, avoiding um, eating with others, cutting food into small pieces, or eating very slowly, or wearing uh, loose or baggy clothes to hide. Your the the you know, the weight loss. So in Allah the Almighty um, has stated in chapter two, verse hundred and sixty-nine, Allah the Almighty states, "O ye men, eat of what is lawful and good in the earth, and follow not the footsteps of Satan. Surely he is um, to you an open enemy." And you know, in this verse, Allah the Almighty is commanding that we eat what is good for us, and by a and be um, by going against this and eating and or drinking something bad or which is prohibited may um, uh, be because for example you're being peer pressured um, and these also lead towards um, committing sins and you know here the Prophet Messiah al-Islam may Allah be pleased with him stated um, regarding healthy eating also that this should be understood that according to the Holy Quran the natural state of men is intimately related to his moral and spiritual status so much so that even his eating and drinking habits um, affect his moral and spiritual states this is why the Holy Quran emphasizes on physical cleanliness and physical moderation for prayers in a cleanliness and devotion after careful consideration one concludes that this is the true philosophy and the physics uh, physical organs have great effects on the soul. And further on, he states also, um, so far as um, our eating and drinking and sleeping and awakening are concerned, they are essential physical actions and they affect our spiritual well-being. Our physical girl is manifestly related to our humanity. The relationship of body and soul is such that one cannot um, explain it easily. Careful observation shows that the body is the mother um, to the soul so you know this stage shows us also if, if we look out for our body then our soul will be, will, be, will be looked after also from this and that's why you know um, uh, and the evolution just as a um, side note the f- we, we, we pray five times a day so we, uh, we, we perform evolution five times a day so we are cleaning our hands three times um, and so on and so forth and this is hap- and this happens five times a day and this is a um um, what's it called physical um, cleanliness, which also um, causes uh, an effect on your inner self, also. So this this was on the side note of, of, while reading with um, what the Promised Messiah has stated, and you know, 
So I was like, um, I was like, <laughs> I was, it's so natural. You'll get used to it. You'll get used, used to it. Okay. I do apologize to our listeners. Yes, um, it's only like six, four minutes left or so. And <laughs> hopefully I get used to it before we end <laughs> today's show. So, you know, um, um, Noshawan, what are the, um, some treatments um, of um, eating disorder? From, from where, to, where to start from? Yes, you know, Saad, um, some of the treatments have been discussed Correct. by our, our experts and I think they're in a better position to Indeed. answer this question. But just to reiterate and just to summarise some of the treatments. Um, so you can start by seeing your primary care practitioner or some type of mental health professional. You can also obviously refer back to your GP. You don't need to feel shy about um, whether you're facing these, uh, this disorder. Um, don't shy away from it. Um, seek help if you need it. Um, go to your GP, go to a professional and you'll likely benefit from a referral to a team of professionals who specialize in eating disorder treatment. Secondly, you live at, if you live at home with someone, mm-hmm. speak to them, your family members, your parents, your partner. And so young people, they're mostly staying at home. Parents should be actively involved in treatment mm-hmm. and they can become, they can supervise meals. And, you know, uh, one thing I've noticed that, you know, um, so when certain parents uh, they are involved in um, looking after what their kids eat or you know some you see them on social media some parents are like um, like chefs let's say or they're influencers in regards to eating or they create uh, content for cooking yes I feel that they are much more aware of what to feed their children mm-hmm. um, because they've done so much studying and it, at the end it comes back to the education point what uh, our expert had mentioned that government should start uh, teaching nutrition in schools and yes. of course if parents and um, have a good understanding of nutrition and what to feed their bodies and what to feed their children i think that could just follow on from generation to generation and uh, that is also beneficial then we also have a uh, psychological therapy Mm-hmm. Psychological therapy is the most important because, you know, if you look at look back, eating disorder is not just not how um, you eat or what you take. It's, it affects your mental health. It's to do with your uh, mentality and what you think as well. Correct. So psychological therapy is a very important component of this eating disorder treatment. It involves you seeing a psychologist or another mental health professional on a regular basis. Then you have, like our expert mentioned, nutrition education. And then you have you can also take medications medications for eating disorders. Uh, medications can't cure an eating disorder, but they can. They are effective um, when you apply them with the psychology um, psych- psychological therapy. Then we have hospitalization for eating disorders. Mm-hmm. It may be necessary to do that if you have serious physical or mental health problems, or if you have anorexia and are unable to eat or gain weight or if you uh, have a severe or life-threatening physical health problems that occur with anorexia can be a medical emergency. Lastly, um, take an active role because you yourself are an important member of your treatment team. If you do not go out and actually um, do the things that your body requires, then it's hard for someone else to motivate you and give you that willpower if you aren't taking that first step yourself. So for successful treatment, you need to be actively involved in your treatment mm-hmm. and so do your family members and other loved ones. Because if you have the right support, if you have a right uh, mindset and the willpower, you are able to overcome and everything and anything um, 
that you come across? Perfect, Dr. Shivan. You know, Zakla, first of all, um, for reiterating what our experts have said here. And it's always, you know, we are, I'm always grateful to the experts who have come, come on and educated us and our listeners about the, um, today's topic, which is um, 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 eating disorder. Likewise, in our, in our first segment, which was about the terrorism in Africa and you know, this is um, one thing. It's always good. We learn so much from this. <laughs> when I was reiterating those points, it felt like I've become one of the experts <laughs> as well. <laughs> so, yes. But I'm no expert in whatsoever in the That's eating what, disorder or uh, treatment in regards to that. Correct. But it's always grateful to you know, have, have it repeated. So, you know, it's always about repeating again, mentioning about it. That's why you know, in the Holy Quran, for example, regarding prayers, it's been mentioned more than 40 times that observe, pray, or observe prayer. It's not mentioned once, but it's mentioned multiple times. Yeah. So it's always good to reiterate what has been said today. So obviously we are hitting the end of today's um, our um, show and you know the time just flies. Two hours, no idea where they went. Yeah. It was Two great. very interesting topics. Indeed. Yep. So it was great um, to be um, presenting with you today, Noshirwan. I got, I got, I got the yeah. name, name right this time around. And obviously, you know, our uh, technical department, Tahir, Brother Tahir, was there helping us out. And also, you know, it's always um, great to have uh, producers like Sabiha, um, Sister Sabiha and also Sister um, Anam, who have produced um, today's shows for us. It's um, it, it was such a pleasure um presenting with you and Oshivan after a very long time and obviously the the floor is yours the last few seconds the pleasure is mine and I hope we get more opportunities to present together because at the end of the day um, it is our job it is the your station you can always get involved uh, you Indeed. can get involved and call us uh, share your comments we have our social media at Voice of Islam UK if you have any comments on the show that we've uh, discussed today two very important topics that we've discussed today um, if you, you can drop us a message and let us know what your thoughts are and it's always a pleasure to have all of you listening and um, I think it uh, summarises us uh, on the afternoon very really, uh, correctly correctly thank you so much for joining us and here is Talk News